morning, everybody. Actually, I brought my Bible up here and don't need it. Um, you don't need yours, or I'm going to talk about the Bible. Um, <clears throat> I have a number of scriptures that I've copied here that I'll be reading, and there's too many to follow um, along with. <clears throat> so when we get to them, I'll just uh, I'll give you the references and um, and then read them. <clears throat> Fifty days from Resurrection Sunday, which was Easter, is Pentecost Sunday. That ends up this year, May 23rd. And in the Sundays counting today, and until that day, that's what I want to focus on. There are three... I've mentioned this before, but it's good to remember. There are three great dates on the Christian calendar. One is Advent or Christmas, which is, according to the name given to the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. So Christmas is God with us. Then... <clears throat> Passover weekend, which for the Christian is Good Friday and Easter, that is God for us. What He did for us that we could not do at all, He did in our place in dying for sin, rising from the dead, defeating Satan, hell, has the keys of death and hell. That's God for us. Then Pentecost is God in us. Actually, uh, Pentecost was more prominent in the New Testament than we have made it. I don't know anybody here that's never heard of Christmas. I don't know anybody here who has no idea about Easter. But unfortunately, due to a specific ignoring of Pentecost, a number of people have no idea what Pentecost is about. Easter, of course, and the resurrection is everywhere in the New Testament. But as far as specific dates, Paul made much of Pentecost. In his, the end of his second or, I can't remember, second or third missionary journey, he was in a hurry because he said, I want to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Now, we don't pay attention to Pentecost, but we should. Pentecost is, in fact, the culmination of all of God's revelation, finally, 
it took God from the Garden of Eden when he gave his first indication of a Messiah, someone who would come to defeat Satan and sin. Instituted there also, in the meantime, the sacrificial system which would illustrate and temporarily point to the coming Messiah who would be bruised on his heel by the serpent but would crush the serpent's head. When he created Adam and Eve, that creation is, I think, maybe best described by a title of one of A.W. Tozer's books, Man, the Dwelling Place of God. That's what God created us for. He created us as a place for His Spirit to dwell, fellowship with us, guide us, warm our hearts, teach us. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, instantly that presence was gone. And not only was there what we call deprivation, they were deprived of the presence of God. Instantly, wherever God is not or is no longer, comes decay. And in this case, they became depraved. So not only did Adam and Eve, as the head of our race, lose the presence of God in their hearts, but in its place was a positive, and I'm using the word positive, not as something nice, something good, but it's not neutral, came a positive hostility to God, His law, His sovereignty over us, and that has marked the human race since. So that today, <clears throat> the problem of the human, the human predicament is that we are empty of what we were created to house. And in place of that presence of God is not just an emptiness or a void, though we feel that. But there is a direct fighting back, hostility, enmity, rebellion against God and His laws. The long history, millennia, thousands of years that God started in the Garden of Eden when He proclaimed there would be redemption. He's, he, God struck out after us to redeem us, to call us, to find us, to get our attention, to draw us back to Himself. It took all those 
thousands of years until Pentecost to finally restore what He created us to be. Pentecost, then, is a pinnacle date. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, promises that we'll look at. It's really the culmination of the plan of redemption. I know that we may think the resurrection was. The resurrection, obviously, the death and resurrection of Jesus had to come about. But that came about so that Jesus, being the bearer of the Holy Spirit, could baptize us with the Spirit and replace His place in our hearts. A thought that's <clears throat> been on my mind is the unspeakable privilege that we have living on this side of Pentecost. We live in the brightest blaze of spiritual light that anybody's ever had. We no longer have to trudge to the tabernacle or the temple when it was built, hauling along, if we're poor, a couple of pigeons. We've got a little bit of money. We've got a lamb. And we have to, at least annually, lay our hands on that animal's head, confess our sins once again, and then aid the priest in plunging a knife into it because I caused the death of that innocent animal. Shed its blood. The priest would place it on the altar to be burned, but save the blood. Sprinkle it on me, which would signify forgiveness for those sins. Go back home and start the whole thing all over again. And that was thousands of years. Showing that one day the Lamb of God would come. When John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. But on that very spot... Not only saying, he's the one we've been looking for for so long that will die for our sins and forgive them in a way that we don't have to continue repeatedly to offer animals. John also said, not only is he the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but I baptize you with water for forgiveness of sins. But He's the one that is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He leapfrogged over. He assumed, of course, but He leapfrogged over the death and the resurrection to Jesus' ultimate purpose, which was to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's Pentecost. That's 
Pentecost Sunday. So, here's another thought. There are, which I'm not even going to get off into, but there, there are some people who believe that there are a whole bunch of dispensations, periods of time in which God's method of dealing with humanity was one way and usually ended up in some kind of failure. And then it was replaced with another dispensation and then replaced with another one. I don't believe any of that. There are basically two dispensations. The Mosaic, which was that system of the shedding of the blood of animals, all pointing to the second one, which is the Christian dispensation. That began, really, on Pentecost. Not specifically Easter. The birthday of the church, the establishment, the laying of the cornerstone, was Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and that was the official beginning day of the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus. And so, in the proper sense, we all talk, and many of us, more so now than even a year and a half or two years ago. Do you think we're in the last days? The last days started on the day of Pentecost. It's the final dispensation. Now, when we talk about the last days, we're talking about the really last days, the final days of the last days, when much darkness will come, followed by the day of the Lord, which is the return of Jesus and Judgment Day. But really, we're in the last period of time, which began on Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit became available to all, to everyone. Let me look back just a little bit here to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is present but not prominent. The whole, actually, the term or the phrase, the title, the Holy Spirit only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Now, doesn't mean the Spirit isn't mentioned, but that particular term. Usually what we find are rather fleeting references to the Spirit of the Lord. And generally there were two kinds, two or three kinds of episodes where the Spirit of the Lord is spoken of. The first one is empowerment and enablement to do specific deeds, usually, uh, or let's say frequently, war. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon, fill in the name, and he smote 300 Philistines. <laughs> this was a common, it was, it was a, 
um, episodic, temporary coming upon a human to perform some particular deed. So it was passing. Three times, all in the Old Testament, there is even this phrase that the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with. And there are three different people. One of them is Zechariah, the priest that was stoned. Another one was Gideon. The other one was a servant of David's, but I, his name starts with an A, I can't remember it. At any rate, that's the picture of the relationship with the Spirit. One, in a temporary empowerment to do specific things. And sometimes it even occurred with people who weren't followers of God. And so it wasn't in necessarily an indication of the character of the person that was empowered to do something. There's a second one. A second way in which the Holy Spirit is spoken of. And that is like the artisans, the craftsmen that built the temple and earlier built the tabernacle. It says the Spirit of the Lord filled Bezaliel to work all kinds of cunning workmanship in brass and metal and wood and scarlet and so forth. That's again a specific purpose uh, to serve God. It's a gift that may or may not be permanent with that person. Sometimes it can just be the giftedness he gave people that they were good craftsmen. But in that sense, the Spirit is spoken of. The major use or reference to the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of the Lord, was in Him in inspiring the prophets. Not only to write down their words, which we have as the Old Testament today, but it was the Holy Spirit that came upon the prophets and they preached to the people. Usually, there's of course some exceptions, but usually the message from the Spirit of the Lord was one of judgment, condemnation, denunciation, fault-finding that God had, I'm sick of your ways. If you don't turn, I'm going to uproot you out of this good land. It was usually threats. Yes, there were plenty of encouragements and promises. If you'll just turn, you'll live. Why will you die? The Spirit then's most prominent reference and role in the Old Testament is inspiring the prophets to preach, to speak of the coming Messiah, but also to speak of a coming day 
when God would give his spirit in a new way, through a new covenant, in a new kind of fullness. Now, of course, in God's mind, he knew this is not new. It's new to these people, but it's not new to God. It's what he created Adam and Eve to be in the first place. And it's what they lost when they sinned. So God never lost track of his original purpose for making us to be the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. He never meant that he would be on the outside as Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock, seeking entrance. That was never God's plan. We started out as the habitation of God. Now we find the great maker of the universe, God, in a gentlemanly way, acknowledging the free will of the person inside the house by the way who doesn't own the house the person standing on at the door knocking owns the house but he stands and knocks unthinkable but the whole aim is that he might re-enter and not to get ahead of myself but to re-enter that habitation and not in a guest room. You understand what I mean? He enters to own it, lock, stock, barrel, property, foundation, water pipes, everything. Because his. It's always been his. It's always been his. It's his because he made it. Second, it's his because he bought it back with his own blood. Yet he stands at the door and he knocks. The longer any of us, I think, walk with God, hopefully we recognize more and more all God has done to redeem us. So that, I don't always want to go to the, to the negative, but we are without excuse. We're without excuse. Totally without excuse. Anybody that ever shows up at Judgment Day unprepared to meet God. There's absolutely no excuse with all he's done, not only for us, but then in his appeals to us. And the dignity, really, with which he treats us. I don't know how many of us, I hope I'm never put in a position where I have to find out, but if I had a tenant who took my property and changed all the keys and ordered me off of his property, I wouldn't knock at the door. 
those big things that the cops have, you know, that's what I would do. I wouldn't put up with that. But we don't know what we're talking about. We don't have any idea. I should say maybe I don't. I see things on the news, as most of you do too, and I see the directions that the wicked are going. It seems like they're coming in like a flood. And I can, I can think of an increasingly lengthy list of people that, a good heart attack, <laughs> I'd vote for. But even this past week, once again, I was just reminded of of the almost incomprehensible for us love that God has for one lost rebel. I have no pleasure that the wicked die. That condemns me. You understand what I mean? Because I'm about that far from some pleasure. <laughs> Lord, if I had your power for just 15 seconds, the funeral homes would be busy. <laughs> but God's not like that. He sees the long picture. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more, he said, the hearts of the children of men so God, well, he doesn't think like we do, but he doesn't leave us there. He expects us to come around to his way of thinking. So really, my way of, Lord, we need, we need fire and brimstone like Sodom. That's not God's first choice, whether it's ours or not. He seeks to restore and redeem, to recapture every soul in whom is the breath of life. So he took thousands of years to finally get to the conclusion of his plan, which is restore me as his dwelling place for his spirit. Not only did the Holy Spirit enable the prophets to prophesy, they spoke of the coming Messiah, but they also spoke of the giving of the Spirit. There is probably the very first real veiled prophecy we might say, came from Moses. <clears throat> Moses um, pleaded with God to give him some helpers. And so God gave him 70 elders because he said, this is too much for me. And it says the Lord took of, his, of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on these, a measure of it, put it on these 70. And in such a way that some of them 
came out to the tabernacle where this occurred, but some of them, for whatever reason, a couple of them, were still back in the tents area in the camp, not where the tabernacle was. And a couple of them were prophesying, preaching, because the Spirit came upon them. And so Joshua, being the associate of Moses, he thought, hey, wait a minute, this is some competition for Moses. We can't have this. So he runs out to the tabernacle and he tells Moses, he said, Lord, or Moses, you need to stop these guys that are back in the camp prophesying. That's, that's for only you to do. Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Then he said this, would God that he would put his spirit on everybody. There's a little flash hint of light that was God's ultimate aim. That's exactly what he planned on. But it took more than 3,000 years to get to that point. But here's the scriptures that I want to read. <clears throat> Isaiah 32 14, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. In other words, God had just ruined things, judged them. Then 15, it will be a delight for just donkeys and pasture until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then <clears throat> Isaiah 41, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, you whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 59 as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Joel, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Finally, Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of Israel the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. They'll repent. <clears throat> now, these, notice, notice a word that showed up frequently. Pour. I will pour out my spirit. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh couple things even the word poor itself indicates plenty abundance overflowing surplus more than we could ever expect it's a deluge of God's spirit the New Testament speaks of giving the Spirit without measure, not meagerly, not in some teaspoon kind of miserly way. I'll pour out my Spirit. This is also always spoken of as something that will come. And <clears throat> in the sense of something better in other words what you have right now saying to the people of Israel the blood sacrifices and all those things are passing away Hebrews says that if this covenant the Old Testament covenant was adequate he wouldn't have replaced it but he always planned on replacing it even when he instituted it in the Garden of Eden. He brought skins of animals to Adam and Eve, it says, to cover them. And the word cover there is the same word as atonement. And he brought these skins, which meant a death occurred. And he said, this is a covering for you. And then he said, he would send a Messiah, the seed of the woman. There's a hint at the virgin birth in the Garden of Eden. And he will crush your head. He said that directly to Satan himself. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll smash you. It took him 3,000 years and a bit more to get to that point. But what does that also tell us? God keeps his word. 
He keeps his word. He doesn't forget. So all these years, he kept saying, I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and restore what I meant in the beginning. There's a new covenant then that was established on the day of Pentecost. And it is the covenant of faith through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Getting a little bit ahead, wherever, wherever the Spirit goes, He not only empowers, He not only enlightens and enables, but He always purifies. Always. That's why John the Baptist, even at the very start of his very short ministry. His ministry was six months at the longest. And he was the talk of the town. It says all Jerusalem and Judea went out to hear him. And he was baptizing with water for repentance, the washing away of sins, the guilt. But even as he preached the, in the middle of his ministry, of water baptism for forgiveness of sins. He pointed beyond that. And he, he said in, in, in the Gospel of John, speaking of John the Baptist, verse chapter, he said, I would not have known him. So they, they never met prior. I would not have known him, but he who sent me to baptize told me upon whom you see the Spirit descending like a dove, He it is who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not water. It's in addition to, different from, totally different from. And what does fire always indicate? Purging, purifying, the removing of dross, the burning off of that which is, makes us impure. Here, as in everywhere, we have once again God's repetitious message. We have a double trouble. We have a twofold problem with sin. And I'm not going to just fix half of it. First, I'm going to enable you through the power of Jesus Christ to repent of your sins and quit them, not by our own bootstrap, but by Jesus' power. But beyond that, I'm going to get back behind the habitual acts of sin, sinning, that you have engaged in and get at the inclination that produced it in the first place. I'm getting at the ground out of which the tree of sinning and the fruit of sinning springs. 
I'm not going to just cut the tree off and then spend the rest of our Christian life trimming suckers that come up from the stump. I'm going to purify the whole thing so that we can, as the father of John the Baptist said, Luke 1, that we might live in righteousness and holiness before God all the days of our life. That's the kind of victory and the privilege unleashed on us for the whole, all flesh on the day of Pentecost. We'll, of course, look um, further as we move through the next few Sundays. But somehow, I want us to grasp the large picture of the long view that God has had and His undeviating purpose. He hasn't moved a sixteenth of an inch. This is His purpose, to restore what we lost in the garden. Let's bow our heads. And I want us to just, maybe for a moment, <clears throat> just thank God, even if you, even if any of us don't hardly understand much of this, even, even in a sense of reverence and awe of that we don't even understand that God's done for us, that we are grateful, that we tell him, Lord, I thank you. I don't even understand and grasp it all. But what you have done to enable me to make it to heaven and to be restored to the wonderful fellowship that you created me to have. Father in heaven, there are several times in our Christian walk that we wonder what your will is and what you would have for us. I pray as Pastor Dan leans into this next several weeks and this idea of Pentecost and the importance of it, that you would be speaking to our hearts, but that we would be intently listening, Lord, for what you would have us to know more about the doctrine of entire sanctification as we look at the experience that the apostles had in the upper room that is for us as well. And as Pastor Dan just spoke about, Lord, even if we don't understand it, may we be thankful that um, your purpose for us is purity. Your purpose for us is to have a temple that you may dwell in, that you may rule over completely. So as we go through these weeks, Lord, I just pray, and I know you're faithful to do it, Help us to be faithful to listen. I pray that you would just minister to our hearts. Show us in the word as we read scripture, Lord. Bring things off the page for us. Give us a confirmation and a peace in our heart that we may come closer to this idea of what your complete intent for us are as Christians. Thank you for the work that you've done from the beginning that we learned about this morning, Lord. From the garden to the empty tomb to the upper room. 
Speak to us about these things, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.